0: Well, open your Bible, if you have a Bible or an app or something to read from, to John chapter 15. And you guys will remember, we have been spending some time, we've been sprinkling other things uh, in our Sunday morning settings. But we have been spending some time defining the concept of discipleship. And doing that because it is a massive definer of our lives. It is not a church word, although it is. It's not just confined to some program or some seminary. It is the word Jesus used to share with each one of us. We are disciples and therefore our lives draw an understanding of what are we about? What are we aiming at? What, what matters to us? So this is a word you take home with you. This is a word that's in the car with you when you're driving to and from work. This is a word when you are raising your children in your home and no one is around. This is a word when you are before the throne of God. This is a word when we gather on Sunday morning. This is a word when we go into the world and our salt and light. We are disciples. And there's a lot of other words that describe us. You know, you've got job titles and you've got family titles and uh, understanding who you are. One of the things we talked about at dinner discipleship thursday night was was just our own self-understanding you know what's defining us and what defines our identity so let's jump into john chapter 15 these i call these verses existence explaining passages right this explains our existence and we'll scoot through a little bit of the section here and not read all of it but john 15 verse 1 jesus says i am the true vine My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I'm very tempted to stop on a bunch of points here. I'll resist the temptation at some level. Um, But... I want you to see as you read these verses, these verses peek into your life and interpret things. So without anybody showing their hands right now, how many of you guys could look at your life and and could say, there's some not so great things going on in my world. There's some things personally affecting me. There's some things in my family. There's some things with business. You know, the last two years and this has gone this way and it went south and then that thing happened. And, and, and you're left interpreting that, aren't you? Trying to figure out where is God in this and, and what does this all mean? And, and you come to these kind of moments. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it. That it may bear more fruit. Right? You could be in a season where God's doing something in your life. That he is interested in even even greater fruit production. And he's that experienced gardener. He knows how to get even more fruit. But that first step could look like reduction in your life. And that might not feel real exciting for you personally. Verse 3. Already, Jesus says, you are clean. That's great news, isn't it? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, <clears throat> neither can you unless you abide in me. In verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be what I've identified you as my disciples verse 16 you did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you let's pray together Father, we are here this morning gathered around you, Lord, gathered together on a Sunday morning, welcoming, by the way, Lord, welcoming your interruption of our week. Lord, with all we've got going on, with all that's pressing on us, we chose this morning to say, hey, that all can just sit and wait. Uh, Right now, I'm I'm just, I'm going to be with the Lord and I'm going to open my heart to him. Lord, that's why we're here we, we need times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. Lord, we trust this is a place you want to dwell. This is a tabernacle setting for you. God, we don't approach arrogantly and we do not approach casually. Lord, help us right now. Maybe some of us came in this meeting and we were very casual about approaching the living God. God, you, you can put a stop to that right now. God, I, I'm not here to be casual. Lord, i I'm, I'm here in your presence to receive something from you that you would impart. Not because of me, not because of those seated around me, not because of the person speaking. But I'm here to receive from you because you use these moments to reach into our hearts and lives. So that's why we're here. Meet us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, at some point, these kinds of verses, they, they jump into whatever season you find yourself in. So, you know, somewhere in the room here, there's 13-year-olds there's in the room with us. And, you know, maybe at 13 years old, you definitely are in the danger of, hey, I'm here this morning because that's what mom and dad do. And at 13 years old, it's possible that if mom and dad stopped coming, you'd stop coming too. But then you could be 30 years old, and you could be here, and you're making your own kind of call. You're coming to places like this, putting yourself in a setting like this. You could be 60 years old. You could be beyond retirement, and you could be here this morning. And, and no matter what age you are, these verses are speaking to your right now existence. You are hearing about a God who works in your life in a particular way, and He thought this great illustration for everybody who grew up watching vines grow. On all around them was to use use those vines. You walk past these vines every day of your life. Let me use these vines to illustrate what your life is and how I'm engaging your life and how I'm defining your life. So there's a concept here that God was interested in. If you're 13 years old, follower of Jesus, then then He's interested in these things in your life. If you're 30 years old or you're 68 years old. He's interested in these things in your life. There is a God who wants your life right now to be growing and be fruitful. That's what he wants for your life. How are you gonna get there? How's that gonna happen? How is fruit gonna emerge from my life? Well, this thing about discipleship, you know, proving to be disciples means that that this is what God is up to in us. And identifying as a disciple means I'm on board with God's agenda for my life. I, I want what he wants in being his disciple. I wake up in the morning. I'm thinking about that fruitfulness today. What does that mean for me? Does that matter to me? Or am I just busy with too many other things? You know, what identity marker goes off inside of you? I mean, you can, probably most of us can remember when you were a kid, people said things to you, they got around you and they said stuff and it it stuck to you, especially the applause elements. Oh, you are, you are so talented, man. That was an amazing game. Oh my gosh. And and then they bring it up to uncle. So-and-so have you ever seen him play basketball? Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. Or maybe it's a musical talent or, or a dramatic talent. Or maybe you were just called brilliant. Or your leadership abilities were, were identified when you were young and people called you a leader. And there's something that went off in you and you liked that. And, and it may be that they were tapping into real things about your life. God really had given these things to you. And they were going to be part of your life in a big way for the rest of your life. But, but whether you're 13 or 68, you need to be careful that you don't lose this verse. So maybe you're a great athlete don't lose this verse don't stop being a great athlete great musician brilliant person god uses your intellect and and, and your incredible grades and your ability to do things and make great decisions maybe you're an influential leader don't stop being any of those things but don't lose this verse because god is doing something that you will lose sight of by just being those things And God has said, hey, I've got all that for you. I gave you those abilities and those talents. But but I am interested in you proving to be a disciple by bearing fruit. What does that mean? Well, I think appropriately the fruit of the Spirit is, is referenced here. Love, joy, peace, patience. All these things are God's life in us being manifest. So, when we stood up this little series here, the AIM activity and the aroma of discipleship, we're aiming at something as disciples. So, the thing that we aim at is what the Bible aims at. And I don't know, maybe you haven't thought about this. What's the one thing, you don't have to shout something out at me, what's the one thing the Bible is aiming at? This book written by God to present his insight and revelation about our existence. What's the one thing? If I said you can't list anything else, you can only list one thing. What's the one thing the Bible is aiming at that it will not sacrifice for anything else? I would say it is aiming at the glory of God. That's the one thing it's aiming at. So that's the one thing that we know is present. Whenever God is at work, it's the one thing he's doing. So what is our aim? Our aim is to see the glory of God in our midst. And he uses that fruit bearing expression because he says, I'm the life in the vine. And so when you bear fruit, you are actually manifesting my life. So out of you is coming my life into its various settings. And that might be a 13-year-old version of God's life or a 30-year-old version or a 68-year-old version version but it's God's life and this isn't that great news because you know when you're 13 years old there's all this possibility of what your gifts might turn into and how influential you might be and what your talents might be and all of it's in front of you if you're 68 years old most of that's behind you now what do you do now at 68 who are you now well you're still got the same high calling that you had when you were 13 or 30 To bring the image of God's glory into his creation. And you'll do it as a 68-year-old versus doing it as a 13-year-old. And it's still God's great purpose. So there's an aim about our lives. And then there is activity in the Bible that has to do with a lot of things that you and I do in the category of discipleship. We do some things. There's certain activities we call them our, our seven hills to die on. Here as a church? Because they're they're the critical ingredients that when you open up the New Testament and you look at disciples and you just ask this simple question what were they doing? You'll come up with this list of seven, then you might get eight or nine, sure. But at some point we just said, hey, let's make seven of these things stick out because they stick out in the Bible. This is what disciples do and jesus pulled a word into this doing conversation when he talked about my father's this i'm that then he issued a command to us here's what you do you abide you abide in me that's what you do so there's an abiding piece here and that abiding is what causes the life of god to become something in us so there's a little bit of mechanism here, right? Pay attention to the mechanism. Don't just be Christians who are not reading the Bible well, because there's a mechanism installed here. There is something God wants to produce in our lives, but he doesn't just say, hey, it's just mysterious. I have no idea how any of it will ever show up for you. But just strap in. That's, that's not how the Bible sounds. The Bible actually turns around and says, hey, Got this great agenda for your life. I want to manifest my life through you as a creature. And I want to show my glory into my creation. Do this, do this, do this, do this. It's all over the Bible. Right? And let's. We're going to be careful, but we're going to be not limiting the Bible in an unhealthy way. We're going to be careful that we're not going to install our doing in our justification before God. That's not what we're going to do with our doing. But neither are we going to close our eyes to the fact that what we're doing actually matters. It actually matters in the fruit production of God's life in us. God wants to produce something in you. Stanley Gale asked this question, how do we grow as Christians? Does the Holy Spirit just come to us on his own like one of those independent contractors who knocks on our door asking if we want a free estimate on home repair? Which in my neighborhood that happens a lot post Hurricane Ida, does he just show up to start a spiritual makeover of us? He goes on and says, Jesus made it clear in John 15 that fruitfulness in the Christian life comes from abiding in him as the vine. The production of much fruit in John 15:5 is framed by the work of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus would send upon his ascension like a power cord to a wall outlet, the Holy Spirit conveys the life, power, and fruitfulness of Christ to us for our growth in grace. Power cord, great illustration, right? At some point, are you conscious of being plugged into a power that comes from outside of you? Are you conscious of that? You're aware there could be a surge of power. This morning, the Holy Spirit could surge with power into your life and do something. This morning, you could hear something that revolutionizes your life. You could get prayed for, as Frank was mentioning. That's why don't don't miss encounters with God. When you plug into something, you're not just plugging into some 9-volt battery here. You're plugging into the Holy Spirit so he could come in a drip if you wanted to. He could come in a surge and blow the hair off your head. And some of y'all have already had that happen to you, it looks like. (laughs) Jesus made it clear in John 15 that fruitfulness in the Christian life comes from abiding in him as the vine. The production of much fruit in John 15, 5 is framed by the work of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus would send upon his ascension. Like a power cord, like a power cord. God has plugged us into something. We abound in that fruit through abiding in Christ. So what does it mean to abide? So abiding is a big word here. Because there's a big outcome that's dependent upon abiding. And it's related to our abiding. Now I think abiding is not describing one thing. I think it's more of an umbrella word. That's pulling a number of things into it. But I want, I want you to notice something. If, if Jesus, and this is often true in the epistles, if Jesus was laying out some thoughts in the gospels, Paul and the epistle writers are often coming behind that and teaching it into our lives as church members. So Jesus spoke of an abiding, a dwelling. That word for abiding is a dwelling word. We're going to dwell in him and we're going to dwell in his word and his Word's going to dwell in us. And then Paul picks that up in Colossians 13 uh, three, Colossians three verse 16, when he says, "Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly." Right? Same concept Jesus laid out. This is, an, this is abiding, and now he's telling the church, "Hey, hey, let the abiding happen, church. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing." one another in all wisdom all right so now we just we just came out of the land of mystery teaching one another is not mysterious it's functional right it's operational it's what's happening right now you can touch yourself you can hear something right now so this is describing something that's no longer the mysterious i plugged into some invisible wall and some invisible cord brought something no no this is practical now paul thank you We're teaching and we're admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Getting the word of Christ to abide in us, to dwell in us richly. That's what we're after. Welcome to Lakeview Christian Center. I don't know if there's a bigger aim than that right there. Because without that, there isn't going to be any fruit and we will not glorify God. So we aim at that which the Bible aims us at. And teaching one another is a massively important thing in the New Testament. Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman wrote a book recently called Rediscover Church. They said, some Sunday afternoon, read through the entirety of Paul's three letters to two pastors, Timothy and Titus. And underline every reference to teaching. Your hand might get tired. So there is an, there is an abiding that is is rather mysterious there's a fruit production that's rather mysterious there's some things that go on where God shows up in our lives in a a place that's been a struggle for us in a place that we weren't growing in a place that we'd like to be different but we're just not and God shows up and suddenly there's something different going on that's that's kind of mysterious but Paul unpacks the mystery and makes it really accessible, right? He does it in Colossians, and he's going to do it again here in Ephesians 4. Here's Paul unpacking this mystery of growth and fruit production. Ephesians 4, verse 7. Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So God has a strategy here that he wants grace to be available for each of us. Hmm. How am I going to do that? Well, I I do think there is a realm in which God does it in the weird pixie dust version that he just, he just mysteriously sprinkles favor on our lives. He just shows up. Holy Spirit's doing something on the inside of us. Nobody is anywhere near us, but God is with us. We've opened the word of God up. It's us reading a Bible, and the Holy Spirit's awakening things in us, convicting us about things, giving us eyes to see things we've never seen before. That's kind of pixie dust-ish. You know, God just showing up. But in this passage, it's not very pixie dust-ish. It's a hard word to say. I'll be speaking in tongues soon. Uh, Grace was given to each one of us. Okay, how? Uh, Through the gifts that God gave. Grace traveled through the gifts that are about to be referenced in this passage to bring that grace into our lives. That's not mysterious. These are people with names on them. These are people that we actually get around. They actually, by God's plan, have some mysterious means of imparting grace into our lives. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain. So we're all on our way somewhere, aren't we? Till we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood. That's a growth word. We're going from where we are to a place of greater maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So it's accurate to say that scattered throughout the room here, there's fullness is happening in a variety of ways. We're on our way. We're in different places. Got saved recently. Just opened my Bible for the first time. Confused by some things, but trying to get there. Seeing some adjustment in my life. I'm listening this morning. I'm getting about a tenth of what you're saying, Keith, but I'm trying. And then there's others who are here who've been on this journey for two decades. And and you're hearing things. And a lot of what I've said is just a review of stuff you've heard before. And, And you're easily grasping and saying, yeah, okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I've heard that from Scripture. Verse 14. So that, here's the purpose, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So there is a place in your Christian life where your driving looks like you've had a few too many. Right? The winds of doctrine blow on you, and next thing you know, you're really crazy about this idea and chasing after this. And then five years later, you finally realize that really wasn't hardly even in the Bible. And now you're over here, and then you get too conservative over here, and you stay away from everything that's weird. And that's not in the Bible either. So there is this being blown by winds of doctrine. And how does God help that? How does God install ballast in the ship? Uh, he gave gifts to the church to bring grace to individuals so that that you could walk away from a meeting like this with a little bit more weight in the bottom of your ship so it'll stop doing this as much as it was doing. Am I making that up because you have to sit here and listen to me talk today? No. It's kind of weird to be the person presenting this, but it is the Bible, right? It's a strategy from God that when he said, "I, I want to get grace in the hands of my individuals, How am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit for sure. So this is not the only way God does it. But then he turns right around and says, I I give leadership gifts to the church. And these leadership gifts are functioning, profoundly functioning and very loud presence throughout the New Testament. So this is a hill for us to die on. It is one today that I would find needs to be both proclaimed and protected. Because it's in a weird day. And I'll get to that in just a moment. He goes on in verse 13. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So how are you, you know, this John 15 identity passage for disciples, it has us growing and it has us bearing fruit. How are you going to do that? Well, in this passage, you're going to do that under the influence of leaders that are given in your life to uniquely impart grace to you. Sinclair Ferguson, in his book, Maturity, says the structure of Ephesians suggests that what links the grace of God in the gospel, chapters 1 through 3, to its practical outworking in everyday life, chapters 4 through 6 in Ephesians, is the, listen, the ministry of the word through apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He says the result, both individually and corporately, is our growth to maturity. So in John 15, God's very interested in our growth. He wants us to move along to a place of maturity that we would bear much fruit. Here, Paul unpacks. Here's how that happens. Here's God's methods and his, his mechanisms. We know little about how Paul envisaged this working out in practice. But it certainly shows how serious Paul was about using the means God provided to bring Christians to maturity. Pouring the word of God into believers was both fundamental and central to the work to which God had called him. And for which Christ had gifted him. He goes on and says the difference between the vision of maturity producing ministry and the way we do church today should give us pause for thought we do not live in a society where this pattern can be simply repeated but how slow we are to fill our leisure time by soaking ourselves in scripture how unusual it is for those who preach and teach to be urged to do so more frequently keith please today preach longer than you normally do If we lose sight of these apostolic priorities, should it surprise us if we fall short of apostolic maturity? We contemporary Christians too often assume our pattern of church life is normal only because we've never experienced anything else. Perhaps we are like an island of one-eyed people who assume their perception of things is normal until a two-eyed person is shipwrecked among them. So here's my premise in this idea that, that there is a thing, there's a, there's a hill to die on for local churches who are together doing, on this journey of discipleship together. The concept of healthy, invigorated leadership functioning in the church, influencing our lives, it, it's a non-negotiable. You cannot pull it out of what we do as a church and be a healthy church. You can't. And as an individual disciple, you cannot pull Out of your life, leadership coming from someone besides you. You can't do it. God's installed it as too important. So here's what I think I wrote out this premise in your outline. Our aim of glorifying God by his life in us bearing fruit is connected to our abiding in him and his word. Which is connected to God appointed leaders and the functioning of the body. Thus, leadership is a strategic essential for our aim. Therefore, it is a hill to die on. All right, now there's no way I could speak on leadership today without speaking about today. Because I don't know in my lifetime that there has been a more difficult time to engage whatever leaders are supposed to be, whoever they're supposed to be, however they're supposed to function, And whatever our attitude is supposed to be toward them, right? Today, leadership is on shaky and conflicted ground. Leadership is commonly protested, defunded, questioned, criticized, and suspected. And I wish I was only describing what's taking place out in the world, right? We're we're never too far from the world's trends. I'd love to say the church is so distinct, But but, but we're not all that distinct. What goes on and echoes off the walls of the world that we live in, it tends to tempt us as well. It tends to engage us as well. So if if in this day we are called to be a church different than 100 years ago might have had some different issues or 1,000 years ago if we're called to be disciples together today and we're going to stand up leadership today, right? I'm, I'm going to say two things have, have got to become more clear to us as a people, modern people. Uh, one of them would be to address the issue of today's pervasive sense of hyper individuality. I think hyper individuality is eroding and impacting what we do together, which is where leaders function. And secondly, uh, we're going to speak about leadership, today's pervasive sense of suspicion and institutional corruption has to be addressed as well. So I'm going to take a little bit of a moment just to address this with us today because I don't think any of us are exempt from these things impacting how we view God's topic of leadership and and how we welcome it in our lives or how we perhaps don't. Let me look at the first one first. Biblical leadership in an age of hyper- individuality I think I wrote this in your outlines leadership is most applicable and relevant when we move from individual activity to corporate activity does that make sense it's only when you and I come together to do something together one thing a bunch of people coming to do one thing in that moment leadership is critical Right? So whether you've played on a sports team growing up, you knew that there had to be leadership because there's 11 guys on a football team on the field at any moment, and they can't all just decide hyper-individuality. They all want to carry the ball for a touchdown. That's all they want to do. That doesn't work, does it? Everyone's got to be told, hey, no, this is the play Right, So a play gets sent in from the sidelines because a leader called the coach, said, this is what everybody's doing right now. I, I don't want to do that. That's a stupid play. Okay. There's the bench, you know. You can go sit over there and you can run whatever play you want over there. But when you come together, it requires you as an individual to take a back seat, doesn't it? This is true if you've served in the armed forces. You go into a military campaign and there are shots being fired and bombs going off and lives are being threatened. In that moment, everybody's not doing their own thing. They're trying to figure out how to come together in unity and do one thing, which means somebody's got to give leadership to that. And everybody else has got to respect the fact that I'm not the one getting to make the call. I'm going to receive leadership from somebody else and that guy's going to receive leadership and that one and that one and that one too. And many of us may not end up doing exactly what we wanted to do, but nonetheless, we're going to do it anyway. See, leadership shows up only when you start to come together to do things together. How many of you guys have noticed in the last 10 to 20 years Our culture is more individualized than it has ever been. You don't have to do a lot of things with anybody anymore. You can figure out a way just to do this on your own. But can I just tell you, you can't build the kingdom of God on your own. You can't be a disciple of Jesus on your own. You and I have got to jettison the idea that I've got this hyper individuality thing going on in me and I want things around me, even corporate things. Like, Listen, you get in the car. I mean, have you noticed in cars this used to not be the case and it was a profound issue for my wife and I. Because my, my wife was a person, I don't think she minds me revealing this, but my wife was a person uh, when we were dating, we could go to like a, a frozen yogurt stand. And, and this would be in August in New Orleans. And she could eat frozen yogurt, get in the car, and turn the heater on. All right, I'm a guy who sweats at the thought of going outside. I don't even have to be outside. Just think about going outside and I can start to sweat. So did you notice at some point car makers kind of clued into this idea? Hey, wouldn't it be cool if one side of the car could be on fire and the other one could be an ice block? And, they, and you got this little control thing happening now. All right, so... Our whole world is responding around, hey, everybody can have it their way. Thank you, Burger King. I think they started that. Or McDonald's. Have it your way. It might be shocking for you to be a part of the kingdom for very long to find out that there is a king over the kingdom who doesn't subscribe to that. I don't want to make it sound ugly. It's not as though God is saying, I don't care for you to have it your way. I care for it all to be my way. And, and since this loving God always has the best ways, if he really loved us, why would he do it my way? If he really loved me, why would he give me second best, third best, or stand in line with Keith's stupid idea once again? He would insist that it be done his way. Because his way is wise and perfect, and, and, and there's no improving his plan. So when he sends a play in from the sidelines, I can agree with it or disagree with it, but it's his call, and he, and he never makes bad calls. So there is this individuality thing that in us that even when we get in corporate settings, we feel like there should be, even this morning, shouldn't there be like a temperature dial that I can, I can make you sound like what I want you to sound like, Keith? I could make you talk about this instead of talking about that. As a matter of fact, when you talk about this, it bugs the tar out of me. How many guys, and this is a hard thing. This is a hard role to play. But God might want you to hear things that you don't want to hear. That if everything was, hey, God, i tell you what, I'm, I'm Thomas Jefferson. And I'm going to take my knife out. And I'm going to carve your Bible up. Because there's a bunch of things in it that don't make sense to me. And there's a bunch of things in it that I don't agree with. So here we go. And God comes along and says, hey, okay, you know, I've, I've written the word. And by the way, now I'm going to send people to you because I'm trying to get grace into your life. And some of those people I'm sending to you, they got, they got nasty titles like prophets and apostles and, and, and teachers who are going to correct things in your life. And that's what they're going to sound like and feel like when they touch your door. They're feeling like they're correcting me. And that's God's means of getting grace into your life. Don't make this more mysterious than it is. It is God using somebody besides you in your life. And that leader isn't you. They're not wired like you. They don't have your same, you know, sense of tempo. And I would do that faster. I would do that slower. Hey, God knows you would do it faster or slower. And he stuck somebody else in your life who does it differently. And he intended that you'd take that hill together. And you'd follow the leadership that God imposed in that moment. But understand, this is hard for us today in a way that it wasn't hard for our grandparents and for some older generations. Because ours has been a generation trained on hyper-individuality. Charles Taylor's excellent book, I've referenced it a number of times, Our Secular Age. He, He says this, let's call this the age of authenticity. It appears that something has happened in the last half century, perhaps even less, which has profoundly altered the conditions of belief in our societies, we now have a widespread expressive individualism. This is, of course, not totally new. What is new is that this kind of self-orientation seems to have become a mass phenomena. So let's not all act as though we're Christians and we read our Bibles, so mass phenomena for somebody else, not for me. Not exactly. He says, everyone senses that something has changed. A majority of Americans believe that communities are eroding, families, neighborhoods, even the polity. They sense that people are less willing to participate, to do their bit, and they're less trusting of others. He says, we see a steady spread of what I have called the culture of authenticity. The understanding of life that each one of us has his, her own way of realizing our humanity. When he wrote this, the gender issue was not, this is over 15 years old now. They don't even define our own humanity the same way. You have your own right to define your own humanity, not just realize it, but to define it. And that it is important to find and live out one's own against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. I want to advertise what I'm after in this meeting this morning with us. We live in a culture that's training us to raise our individuality to such a great height and then to feel like any imposition on me is wrong. It's wrong. But what do you do when you start feeling that way about the government? And I appreciate it, Charles is, He's got a variety of things all included in this. Anything from the outside. Society, the previous generation religious or political, when I start functioning with the idea that I have a hyper sense of my individuality needs to be what things are answering to, then I don't want that government telling me what to do. Can I just tell you, you're not too many days away from, I don't want that church telling me what to do either. Don't think you can suck that into you and it'll only go in certain compartments. Can can I just tell some of you who are are loud conservative rabble-rousers, You men in particular, you're undermining your role as a father. You are teaching your children to be suspicious, to find fault with authority. At some point, guess what? You're going to be the authority that they're going to do that to. They watched it and watched it and watched it over and over and over again. They live in a culture that says, don't let anybody impose anything on you. Guess what? As a parent, I impose a lot on my kids, but they all moved out, but they are older. (laughs) And at some point that's the right response, right? Hey, you want to do that? You know, you can live on your own. But, you know, if you live here, I impose some things on the people who live here. And that's not wrong. In God's world, if you're going to live in God's world, he imposes some things on us. But just be careful. You and I have fallen for something here. Because we have bought into what Charles Taylor responds to. He he describes a hyper-individuality that I don't want anybody telling me what to do. But God designed it so that people would tell you what to do. He designed a world where he intended to interfere with our will, and he's the creator. He intended to impose things. Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as opposed to what else? Well, I don't know. Whatever I'm interested in, whatever I personally gravitate towards, whatever ideas coming down the pike, whatever's dressed in the same kind of clothing that I like. No, oh, no, 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 no. The Bible says no to that. It says let the word of Christ. Richly dwell in you. So that's going to rule out a few things. What if it's at odds with the word of Christ? Well, then don't let it dwell in you. Am I imposing anything right now? I'm not imposing anything that's not in the word, is there? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom has an anchor in something. Wisdom has an anchor in the revelation of God. God has revealed some things that is wise for us to repeat it over and over and over again. And we teach and admonish one another in those categories. You can't receive from one another if you've got an attitude that says, hey, I got my way and you got yours. Don't put that on me. You can't receive. See, this undermines fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. First Timothy chapter four, Paul was very particular in what it is that we share with one another. In verse one, he says, now the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Listen, if this is just vague spirituality and you just can believe all kinds of different things about God and how to get to him and how to relate to him and what's okay in this world, then there's no way to depart from that. This is a a stupid verse. If Paul's trying to say, hey, whatever you believe, it's kind of up to you. This verse doesn't make any sense. The Spirit expressly says, the Spirit of God who in perfection says these things, that in later times some will depart from the faith. They will take something on for their own self-definition. And by God's definition, they have departed from the faith. They are no longer in the faith. Is that an, an imposition? Well, yeah, it is. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Verse 6. Timothy, if you put these things, not anything, Timothy, not whatever you come up with, right? Timothy is one of those Ephesians four eleven gifts to the church. Timothy is pastor, teacher to the church. Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Hey, read read that backwards. And if you put something else instead of these things, Timothy, you will be a bad servant of Jesus Christ. Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have believed. Verse 11. Timothy, command and teach these things, not anything, but these things. These things might not get along with your individuality or mine. These things might put me in the crosshairs of that's not me. Am Am I wrong? Do I need to change? Do I need to adjust the way I do life? Well, Timothy is to command and teach these things. Leaders in the body of Christ are to command and teach these things. They're not always comfortable and they've become even harder because today we're trying to make everybody's imposing answer to our individuality, but God's not doing that. God puts leaders in our midst so that they will actually lead with wisdom that they get from him and they will deliver the faith and not a bunch of different ideas about faith. All right, let me touch on one more thing. Biblical leadership in an age of suspicion and power abuse. Oh, we're not too many moments away. You will, not, you will not escape today without somebody mentioning a date that used to mean nothing to you. January 6th. Anybody heard of that date besides me? Anybody heard of that date before? You know, uh, January 6th. Hunter Biden. Anybody suspicious? Police body cams. Anybody want to see a particular police body cam of a situation that happened? Lee Zurich. Sorry, I just had to keep it local. <laughs> Lee is an investigative reporter. right? We, we think corruption and cover-up are everywhere because that's what we're taught over and over and over again. And I'm standing here today because the church exists in order to do this discipleship thing. And I've said this before, and I will say it again. The world, its mechanisms, its systems, its, its consistent sound is out discipling us every day. So whereas if you pick the Bible up, and I, won't, I can't get to this today, I don't have enough time. But if you pick the Bible up and tell me, does the Bible install suspicion about leaders? I challenge you, pick the Bible up and tell me that you found that in the Bible. It almost sounds more like blind followership. It's got some awkward things to say about people who are doing the wrong thing, and yet you're still supposed to follow them. That's in the Bible. A lot. But what I hear a lot of is suspicion. Investigate. Challenge. Protest. Get up in their face. Because everybody, and this is institutional. We trust the individual. We just don't trust the institutions around us. Well, where does that come from? Hyper-individualism. We've relocated the center. And since now, every corporation has got something wrong with it. Every corporate policy, every law, the government, the church, anything that's an institution now, we are fully suspecting. But if you visit the scriptures and try to justify the idea that, well, we should suspect leaders because they do the wrong thing, you know, Keith. From the Garden of Eden, yes, I do know. They do the wrong thing. There was a husband In the Garden of Eden who seems to have fallen down on his job. Wouldn't everybody have loved for Adam to do a little better job of leading his wife? Wouldn't you have loved that? I'm not sure what Adam and Eve were doing in their parenting. Parenting is a authority structure in the scriptures. I don't know too much time on their iPhone because they had one son who murdered another one. Lack of parenting when they were little. You didn't spank them enough. What went on here? And you just go down through the ages. Somebody tell me how proud you would have been to have David as your father. Oh, part of you is like, well, yeah, I would have been. Tell me his whole story. Sit down at school and tell me his whole story. The kid that you go to school with is neighbors with Bathsheba. I used to know Bathsheba's husband until your dad murdered him. You understand, there are leaders all throughout Scripture that have a bad resume, left and right. You can't find one. Abraham, Abraham, sweet old Abraham, the liar who wouldn't stand up and tell the truth when he got confronted by a situation. Noah, really Noah? The first thing you got to do after you get done with your ark experience is get drunk and lie naked? Really? Thanks. Great story. Moses. David, Solomon, even worse. And all of these guys were authorities that God interacted with them as authorities. Do you, do, you, do you think David should have just stopped being king? David, it finally came out. Nathan published it. He called you out on it, man. You murdered a man and committed adultery with his wife. A day after tomorrow, David is still king and he will be king next week and next month and next year. And God will turn around and say, that's a man after my own heart and I want you to follow him. You understand, it's not as simple as Fox News and CNN make it out to be, I'm sorry. Stop being discipled by those people. God's got something to say about leadership. God's got something to say that sounds like this. Jeremiah 23, here are these prophets and these shepherds of God's people. Jeremiah 23, most indicting words a a leader could ever hear. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and you have driven them away. And you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. In verse 9, he says, concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. For the land is full of adulterers. This is being laid at the feet of the prophets. Because of the curse, the land mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Verse 11, both prophets and priests are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. From Jeremiah 23 all the way to the book of Revelation, please find me the place where God defunds the prophets and cancels The leaders who do this kind of stupid stuff, who harm people. When we get to the New Testament, God takes all these, quote, corrupted bad ideas, and he stands them up all over again, and he says, hey, people of God, submit to this. Right? Race through these with me real quick. Ephesians chapter 6. Listen, this is done and said against the backdrop of, listen, there is no leader who fails more. You want me to give you one title of a leader who fails more than any other leader? It's not president. It's not policeman. It's father. It's the one leader in the world who's got more failure in his resume than anybody else does. You want to figure out why our society is in the shape that it's in? You can start with those leaders right there. And what kind of influence they're having. And then God turns around in Ephesians chapter 6 and tells the church, verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor. Your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. First Peter chapter three. This is a rather interesting verse because our justification for being suspicious and not trusting and not submitted is these guys are doing the wrong thing, Keith. Okay, but when I read the Bible that's discipling me, it sounds this way. First Peter three verse one. Likewise, wives. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Is God's kingdom upside down or what? I don't know about you, I'm not getting this in the evening news. They're not, they're not standing up the idea that there are things that God has created that we should run toward them, even though they're flawed, even though they don't do everything exactly right. 1 Peter 5, consider these shepherd words after Jeremiah 23. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight wait god did you just say that after what you said through jeremiah the prophet that it was the shepherds and the priests and the prophets who scattered your people and who turned the land into a farce and god turns around in the new testament and says shepherd the flock not under compulsion but willingly as god would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock so there's a right way to do that right And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Let them impose something on you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Is there anybody... More aware of human waywardness than God Himself, I think not. If anybody should be suspicious, it's God. And yet, God continues to stand things up and use them in all their their limited, weak, and broken human versions. God stands them up. And he doesn't just stand them up, right? He says that through them come a unique grace into the church that causes growth and maturity to take place so that fruit can be born for the glory of God. Right? Well, that's what God's building here. Let me make one last point before I escape this passage. You know, we, we, we live in a culture that's suddenly become the justice league. Uh, Hyper interest in justice. Again, you know, if, you, if you've never read Romans chapter one and Romans chapter two, I invite you to read Romans chapter one and Romans chapter two before you fall too in love with justice. It's humbling to find out whether or not each one of us deserves the justice of God. We might sound a little different. We might still love justice because God loves justice. But we might sound a little more humble when we come to that topic if we read those two chapters. Colossians chapter three that starts in verse 16 with let the word of Christ dwell in you richly knowing that Paul is going to stand up leaders who are going to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom so he knows there's going to be an authority structure of leadership in the church and it's going to be beneficial and then immediately the next thing Paul's going to talk about is authority structures verse 18 wives submit to your husbands As is fitting in the Lord, so God brings grace. He orders relationships and authority. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord. Stop. But what if these people are doing the wrong thing? What if there is wrong mixed in with their right? Because that's usually what's going on, right? What if that's the situation? Shouldn't we just cut it all off and protest it? Should we stay away from it completely? I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible sounds like. But where's the justice, Keith? People are doing the wrong thing. They're taking advantage of others. Where is the justice? I am shocked. How unbiblically informed people are about justice. Can everybody just play this game for a second with me? Do you know what the ultimate day of justice is? Do you recognize there is a God who knows every sin that has ever existed? He didn't just grab a concept called sin and place it on his son. He grabbed every one and placed it on his son and judged every last one on his son every last one. That's a God of justice. He does not leave anything overlooked. Don't for a second think that somehow God's going to brush your issues to the side. It is either going to get visited on Christ and the judgment will fully take place there or there coming a day of judgment when everybody who sinned will get theirs. So whether you are effective as doing your best impression of Lee Zurich or anything else protesting, whatever, because you feel the need to cause justice to fall right now in the way that makes sense to you. Okay. But maybe not. Okay. Cause here in these structures, Paul says this verse 23, whatever you do work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So if these structures have got men in them that you are struggling with, Well, your work was to the Lord anyway. You didn't go to work submitting to that because that person deserves to be submitted to because they've got straight A's and they're doing everything right. No, 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 that's not God's kingdom doesn't work that way. You serve the Lord in what you do. He is my master. You got a lousy husband, serve the Lord. You don't like something that's been done by you by the government or something? Serve the Lord. I ain't paying my taxes. You know what those people do? Do you think Jesus didn't know Caesar was corrupt when he said render to Caesar the things that are Caesar? You think he was like, oh, wow. Had I known what was going on in Rome? Knowing, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. You worried about? Those in roles of authority maybe have got some sideward motivations. Maybe there's something not exactly pure going along. You might never be able to figure that out. But the God who judges, he already knows. And he just told you, I got this. The wrongdoer will be paid back. So God takes... And puts us in a different place. He, he says, hey, I've got a people that I, I want them to grow. I want them to bear the fruit of my life in them. I, I, I want who I am to come pouring out of their veins. And I want people to experience the glory of God in their life. That's, that's what I want. And here's my means of doing that. And God gives the Holy Spirit and there's personal things that happen. But in this passage, God puts leaders in our lives. Now I've highlighted a variety of Leaders. If you're a child in a home, God's put your parents in your life. Your parents are not perfect. They're going to have bad days. They're going to do some strange things sometimes. Some of you have come from really bad situations where the the home life was horrible. The Bible's not lacking compassion. And it's not, by the way, lacking wisdom either. But it will not serve you to take the failures of leaders and to let it turn you into an anti-leader person. The second you do that, you are not biblical anymore. God desires to transfer grace into your life. You don't get to just decide, I ain't getting that kind of grace. Hey, Jesus can come to me personally, but I ain't, I've been burned by too many people. Jeremiah 23 gives way to 1 Peter 5. The God who said, I'm going to have people in your life still is saying, I'm still going to have people in your life. And if they do the wrong thing, whether you can ever fix it or not in this world, they will get theirs. The God of justice will take care of the justice part. You and I are so seldom ever, ever qualified to play in the Justice League. Blah. I watched the body cam. All 28 seconds of it, huh? You ever just aware that sometimes situations involve more information than you will ever have access to. And you're just going to have to trust that there's a God who will deal with the evil. And he will punish it, correct it, steer it, and take it up. But you and I don't have permission to take this thing called leadership, set it to the side. It is a hill to die on. It is something we both want to have vigorously happening among us in the church and it is something we want to be receiving from because it's God's mean of transferring grace to us. This is an important deal for us. All these things are important deals if we're going to be disciples and bear fruit. Let's stand up together and pray. Lord, something about doing life in this world with other people that creates a lot of the terrible stories that we have to tell. A lot of the hurt and disappointment and ways that things went wrong. Lord, the things that hurt us the most, they happen in the leaders that are closest to us. God, you're not turning a blind eye to that. I know you're not. Or people who are here this morning who are saying, my stories about my parents were horrible. There are wives here, husbands as well, who lived in a relationship with a spouse that was just one hurt after another. Got our government isn't giving a ton of things to applaud and decisions that seem well-guided and well-motivated. Lord, in the kingdom of God, we've come into a place where folks in this room have been part of churches and they've walked in settings where maybe they've felt hurt by a leader in the church, disappointed. Lord, in all these places, it just makes sense to us to isolate ourselves from people, just to do our own thing, to keep folks at a distance. But God, when we read your word, you don't direct us that way. You stand up authority in our lives and leadership in our lives. You use it in ways that you see as more valuable, even when you have corrected severely the failure of leaders. God, I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we just wouldn't have this concept of leadership. But we would have hearts that are humble and receptive to leaders. Not because one day, Lord, you'll send us perfect leaders in this church. But because you have chosen to use human vehicles to impart grace into our lives. And Lord, I don't want to miss out on any of that. Even if I got to sift through some of the difficulties that come with people. I want to receive grace. So God, would you help us? Help us be a church that will die on this hill. Die on it in being leaders, all who are called to lead in whatever capacity, Lord, that you would cause us to be what's described in 1 Peter 5 giving oversight, but being humble and not domineering over people, but serving and proving to be examples and living the very things that we value. God, would you make us a church that's receptive and open and seeking to be led, longing for input that comes from outside of us. Lord, would you make us a church who looks ultimately to you, but to one another and says, please impose on me. Your truth and your wisdom and your ideas, oh God, in this information age. Father, I pray for those among us who in the future would be called to be leaders. Lord, the world has made leadership a rather unattractive thing. Nobody wants to be a policeman anymore because you're going to be critiqued and hyper-criticized in situations that most of us would have not known what to do. But it feels like we're so familiar with listening to everybody complain that nobody wants to become the object of complaint. God, this is a hill to die on. So Lord, right now, I pray for every leader here. I pray for every leader who you are awakening a sense of leadership in their lives. Lord, with all the complication that that brings and all the inconvenience and all the non individuality that they will lose, Lord, every leader here will give up a little piece of individual preference. But yet you're still calling and still sending and still using and still imparting grace through them. I've got to pray for husbands and wives who have been in leadership places. And Lord, it was hard. And then maybe they're not sure they want to keep doing that. God, would you, would you awaken a value for this grace that comes to your church? Lord, you had intended to mature your church, grow your church, strengthen and equip your church through leaders in the body of Christ. So Lord, would you even this morning put some men and women on notice here today? that you're still awakening servant leaders today. Not because it's convenient or popular or easy, but because it's how you build your kingdom and bring grace into our lives. So Lord, make this for each of us a hill to die on. We gotta have leadership and we gotta have it the way you want it, Lord that we welcome lord this we ask in jesus name amen amen hey guys if you need prayer if you need prayer just come find some guys up here please let them pray for you in your moment of need grateful to have each of you guys here grateful for those of you watching grateful for pastor peter and miss jean we miss you guys completely understand why you can't be here but we love you and we miss you